Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, America, it's time for another episode featuring America's favorite family facing disorientation and confusion in the face of an apparently meaningless and absurd world. That's right. It's time for the existentialists. Hey, Dad. Oh, it looks like Mom made hotcakes again. You want some? Anything. Anything would be better than this agony of mind, this creeping pain that gnaws and fumbles and caresses one and never hurts quite enough. You know the Hamiltons next door? Their baby ate all the clippings and the grass catcher and their lawnmower. Every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. Hey, did I tell you I made the pep squad? There is this really cute boy on the football team, and I'm pretty sure he likes me. All human activities are equivalent, and all are, on principle, doomed to failure. You know what, Dad? I feel like you never listen to me. I could say anything, and you just talk about the anguish of being human. Well, excuse me. Isn't that funny? Somebody told me that was funny. Stick with what you know, Dad. Nothingness lies coiled at the heart of being like a worm. That's all we have time for today. Tune in next week when pretty much the exact same thing happens. Meanwhile, here's a show on the precarious plight of the modern sitcom. And now the man who wrote Alf's famous catchphrase, To live alone is the fate of all great souls. So eat my shorts. Colin McEnroe. I think Schopenhauer said the first part, not Alf. But um, I kind of want to watch The Existentialists. It seems as though it's the kind of sitcom that I might enjoy. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about the life um, span of the sitcom, the history of the sitcom, uh, the charges that are perennially leveled, uh, but perhaps with more conviction these days, that the sitcom is an imperiled art form. We'll talk about all those things today and many more besides. Uh, and uh, let me introduce our guest. Uh, Saul Austerlitz joins us. He's the critic and author of Sitcom, A History in 24 Episodes, From I Love Lucy to Community. Uh, also joining us is Dan O'Shannon. He's been with us before. Uh, Dan O'Shannon is a television writer and producer who has worked on Cheers, Frasier, Modern Family, uh, his new book of cartoons. Run out and buy this book of cartoons immediately. Uh, well, I'm finished listen- listening to the show first, but uh, is it's called The Adventures of Mrs. Jesus. Um, and a little bit later on the show, we'll talk to uh, Slate's television critic, Willa Paskin, specifically about this perennial charge that the sitcom is imperiled, or at least not doing well, or at least one critic recently wrote about the sitcom recession. Maybe that's a better way to think about it. So, um, Saul Oster, let's, uh, let's begin with you, and let's sort of uh, try to begin at the beginning. Um, is, is there... Some kind of thumbnail definition of, of what a sitcom is? Is there Are there some threads that run all the way through the form from I Love Lucy through community? Well, I think it begins as a domestic format. It's really interested in families. It's interested in domestic life. It takes place in living rooms and kitchens. And it's mostly interested in that kind of small bore comedy. And 
that's its roots and that's really where it proceeds from. And obviously it's very different today than it was in the days of I Love Lucy or the Honeymooners. But that sense of being interested in the small details uh, has always been the, the major through line of the sitcom. Dan O'Shannon, do you see other through lines? I mean, it seems to me one thing that sitcoms do, whether they're looking at the family or the workplace, is they provide some kind of prism through which we, for the most part, have looked at life that is recognizable to us, right? When, when we look at the sitcom, we're usually looking at or for some version of ourselves. Does that seem fair? Yes, but how would it be otherwise? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if I, when I'm watching a drama, uh, I, I'm not a starship captain. I don't run the, uh, the starship Enterprise. I'm not uh, a paraplegic a police detective like Ironsides. Uh, I, I'm not most of the things that, that, that are— is, That is all true. Not yeah. interrupting, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. That, that is all true. You are not any of those things, nor are you a bus driver, but you can relate to Ralph Cramden. Uh, it's about humans. If there are humans starring in dramas, it's human drama. Um, and no matter how far out it gets there, it's the human characters, even if they're not humans, even when we're watching shows or movies that have animated animals. We watch Mickey Mouse, we watch Bugs Bunny. They're humans. That's what we're watching is human behavior. And uh, generally, and even if we're watching like true nature documentaries where they, they dramatize what happens to animals and they have a narrator coming to give it a narrative, we're actually bestowing human qualities on them. So, so absolutely, the answer to that is yes, absolutely, but I cannot yet see an alternate to that. Well, uh, let me just stay with you on this, Dan, for a second. So then if we're going to say that, then we're going to say the only real difference between a sitcom and a drama is that a sitcom is, is mining the exact same kinds of material for laughs and for humor as opposed to for breathless excitement. I wouldn't have a problem with that. Okay. See, I, I, I wrote for both. I wrote for uh, sitcoms for many years, and then I took two years and I wrote dramas. I wrote sci-fi, and I wrote a show called Jericho on uh, CBS, which oh, yeah. you couldn't get more serious than that. And I found that all the tools for writing scenes, for motivating characters, for moving narrative were exactly the same in a comedy room, in a dramedy room, a dramedy room, drama room, except that there wasn't an emphasis on getting a laugh every few lines. But so, it was all the exact same stuff. It was all humans and all psychology. Well, and on the other hand, it would seem to me another big difference is rhythm, right? I mean, you know, in, in comedy, there's a lot of talk about, you know, knowing where the beat is, which I think is, I mean, it's not, not that it's not true. I mean, there's, there are beats in Richard III, which is not a comedy. But, um, but comedy seems to depend more on, on certain kinds of rhythms and, and maybe even familiar rhythms to us. Yeah, I would, I would say that's fair. I, I, definitely, that, that is all a part and parcel of, of uh, telling the human story in a comedy. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a telling a story that it, and, and making you feel things about characters, hopefully. And, uh, and, but it's also about getting the laughs. That, that is one of the primary goals, unlike drama, where it's really just telling the story. So Saul Austerlitz, and by the way, as we go along here, if you have your own thoughts about the history, the nature, the future uh, of the sitcom, uh, please feel free to call us at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. And you may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. Greg Hill, our tweet master, will tweet right back at you. So Saul Austerlitz, well, I think one of the things you could say that sitcoms did f- for, the, for, the, for their life is kind of acquaint uh, Americans with sort of universal laws of comedy and rhythms of comedy. I mean, our, our idea of what's funny, what's a setup, what's a punchline, it seems to me an awful lot of that comes, we're, we're just sort of constantly being educated about that by sitcoms. React to that. 
Well, not only that, but sitcoms literally had a laugh track in which they told us where to laugh. So sitcoms educated us in the sense of providing us with a guidepost to say, okay, that was a funny line, and here's this imaginary audience that's laughing along with it so as to indicate that to you. So I think that sitcoms really were intended from the outset to kind of train audiences in a certain kind of domestic comedy. And over time, I think they've changed quite a bit, though. You know, the kinds of things we expect from sitcoms today is pretty substantially different from what it began with in the 1950s and 60s. Um, what did it begin with? I mean, how, how do you see the beginning uh, as different from from modernity? Well, I see it as being very much about a certain kind of group of people, mostly families, and about a certain kind of family. So obviously, it's exclusionary in some ways. It's really just about, you know, a kind of white middle class suburban family that I think we understood in the 1950s or 60s to be the kind of basic everyday American. And over time, that's changed quite a bit. You know, even looking at shows that are already on the older side from the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, shows like Roseanne or The Cosby Show, they're doing the same kinds of things that sitcoms always did. They're telling stories about families, about parents and children and dating and, you know, uh, relationship problems and all of those sorts of things. But they're also expanding the horizon of what the sitcom can do by including the kinds of people who might not have been included before, whether it's African-Americans on The Cosby Show or a a more class-based expansion of horizons with Roseanne. You know, I might push back at that a little bit, uh, and I'd be interested to hear both Dan O'Shannon and Saul Austerlitz about this. I'd argue that sitcoms were the most inclusive American entertainment form. You know, I mean, and they've included a series of of otherwise excluded groups. If you think of the early sitcom stars, a lot of them were people like Phil Silvers, Jack Benny, Maury Amsterdam, Carl Reiner. These are Jewish comedians who are introducing a, a style of Jewish humor and comedy where a lot of the rhythms and beats do come out of vaudeville and the Catskills and stuff like that. But at a time when a television news anchor had to be a wasp and, and the star of a dramatic series had to be a Robert Stack kind of wasp, you know, but, but and the other people who I think are, are given a level playing field in the earliest days of comedy are women. Lucille Ball, Mary Tyler Moore, Elizabeth Montgomery, Barbara Eden, you know, that they were not allowed to be TV news anchors. They rarely were the stars of dramatic series. But comedy was a place where everybody got to play. And and when people are added into the mix as we go along, whether it's African-Americans, whether it's gays, whether it's Latinos, they're usually added into comedy first and then everything else later. So, Saul, I'll let you respond, but I want to hear Dan about this, too. Oh, I agree. I I think you're absolutely right. I I think that uh, the sitcom has always been particularly hospitable to women, in part because of this domestic aspect of it. It was expected to be not only to be about people's homes, but also to be watched in people's homes. And that seemed to create a sort of space that allowed uh, more female characters and a a more more openness to women in the shows themselves. So I'm not disputing what you're saying. I still think that part of what's happened in the sitcom is an expansion of its horizons, but it, it is something in which there was more room for diversity and difference and just characters who didn't fit the bill uh, from the outset. So even something like I Love Lucy, you know, you have uh, a character like Desi Arnaz's character who is explicitly not American, you know, not the sort of traditional white bread dad. Uh, so I, I do think there's always been that kind of space. And, and part of what has happened over the course of the history of the sitcom is 
expanding that and uh, changing the definition of the sitcom to have it become a little bit less domestic and maybe a little bit less run-of-the-mill in some ways. Dan O'Shannon, what about that? What's your thinking about the sitcom as a way of kind of expanding our our notion of what the American family is? Okay, let me uh, – first, if I may take a very quick detour, I want to kind of uh, bring up something that was said a moment ago because I think something might have been misleading about maybe of laugh tracks as a way to train people where the laughs are and everything. I think to understand television, you have to understand radio and the radio history. And radio sitcoms started out, and those are the prototypes of the sitcoms we have now. That's where all the rules were laid down. And they found that in front of a live audience, the show had more pop. People would laugh more, that sort of thing. And then when they started doing shows without a studio audience, they found they were less funny. And what they were trying to do is recreate the experience of the more successful shows that had audiences. It wasn't about training people. Uh, it wasn't about telling them where to laugh. I, I think back then people had so much more respect for the American audience than they do now, than we do now. You know, people knew when to laugh, but it was more fun, more exciting, more electric, more explosive if there was that feel of that, that, that live show, that live audience there. And that, that's, I think, where that came from. Now, as far as what you're saying about being more expansive, I agree, I think, a lot with what you're saying. And I think you can't sort of really have this conversation without mentioning Gertrude Berg, who started in radio and wrote thousands of scripts. And she is largely forgotten today, and she was an early pioneer in television. She created a show called The Rise of the Goldbergs, in which she also starred. And people have so forgotten her today that ABC has no problem calling a show The Goldbergs now, when they should not touch that because it's actually sacred in TV history. And that was about a Jewish family and a Jewish woman. And so, yes, and then you had the Cuban band leader. And you have, you have people who are diverse. I think the difference is that the people aren't idealized now so much in sitcoms as they were. He was a, he was a, sure, he was a Cuban band leader. That makes him different. Mm-hmm. But he still was a nice guy. He loved his wife. He had no real big flaws. I mean, until you get to, like, Archie Bunker and stuff like that, which then you can also throw back to Jack Benny, where you could start to expand flaws and see real weaknesses and that sort of thing and explore them for pathos and, and comedy. That's, I think, where TV is getting more expansive. Well, you know, let's take a moment and talk about that idealization question, because that seems to me that in in – if if sitcoms could be said to have taken some sharp turns over the years, that's one of them, right? That that ultimately the message for decades uh, was everything is basically going to be okay. Um, you know that that by and large families are happy. By and large, reality is is charitable. Uh, uh, Einstein said the only real question is the universe is the universe a friendly place or not. Well, in sitcoms for for their initial decades, it, it's. It's a friendly place. You know, life is pretty good. So, um, Saul Austerlitz, I'm wondering if you see, if you have a theory about when that turn got taken. To me, one of the ways that turn was, turn was taken was on MASH, where MASH was arguably a sitcom. On the other hand, it was positing a, a more bleak reality at times, and, and they actually, you know, famously killed off one of their characters when McLean Stevenson was leaving the show. That There was kind of a sense of th- that the sitcom there was growing in the direction of drama. But maybe you have your own theory about when these turns got taken. I think that's exactly right, but I want to complicate the history a little bit as well. You know, I think that we're talking about it as if uh, the sitcom was monolithic. And I I think instead it's important for us to remember that part of the change that happens in the sitcom is based on the change in audiences. So when the sitcom first starts in the late 40s, early 50s, even mid-50s, the audience for television is very limited. You know, people only have TVs essentially in big East Coast cities. And so – 
you know, you have these sorts of much more sophisticated sitcoms on at that point than you would have 10 or 15 years later, in part because the audience was self-selected to a large part. So, you know, you have all these Jewish comedians, and it seems sort of anomalous in some ways. But if you think about it, if you think about the places that actually had access to TV in 1951 or 53 or 55, it was cities that had a lot of Jewish people. So there is a way in which the comedy starts off more sophisticated and grows less so before coming back up around 1970, where we're talking about shows like MASH and All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore show that all kind of want to make the sitcom a little bit pricklier and a little bit more dramatic than it had been before. But, you know, in terms of this sense of characters being lovable or, uh, you know, not having any flaws, I think that's mostly true. I definitely think that the average sitcom of the 50s and for sure of the 60s has characters like that. But there were exceptions at the start. You know, I think you look at characters like Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners or Phil Silvers playing Sergeant Bilko, and they're still fairly astounding today, the extent to which a sitcom, a very traditional sitcom, makes room for the kinds of feelings and the kinds of unpleasant behavior that I think would still be jarring to us today if we saw it on our televisions. Well, you know, I sort of wonder about that. And those are two great examples. So here's Ralph Cramden, who's, you know, almost pathologically an angry man and who's one of his catchphrases has to do with uh, effectively hitting his wife um, uh, or at least metaphorically hitting his wife or something. Uh, and um, actually, a couple of his catchphrases, I think, have to have to do with that. And 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 Phil Silvers, who is a sociopath, essentially on his show, he's Sergeant Bilko. Um, and so. Um, Dan O'Shannon, maybe if, when you think about taking characters like that and then placing them in other time periods in the life of the sitcom, maybe you could get away with them now because, you know, in, in a universe that includes a show like Broad City, you know, you can have all kinds of pathological characters. But there have been times where you wonder whether Ralph Cramden could play successfully, say, in, in the 1980s. I don't think Ralph Cramden could play now. I think we're, more, we're so much we're shocked when we see that now. And the people being introduced to the honeymooners are just shocked to see this guy screaming and threatening uh, his wife. Whereas in the 50s, you know, you know, I think people were a lot less shocked by that kind of behavior. And I think it's because we are socially a little more aware, a little more politically correct, a little more responsible, a little more aware of like, what kind of behavior we're, we're modeling for people, that sort of thing. Um, but, um, you know, I, I did sitcoms in the 90s where I was being told, the 90s, yeah, the 90s, where I was being told you couldn't do things specifically that had been done on All in the Family uh, 20 years earlier. And so, it, you know, it's these fits and starts of what's allowable. So in some ways, the sitcom keeps growing and expanding as far as what we can do. And then at the same time, it's also pulling back and saying, well, you can do this, but you can't do this. You can't show a character smoking on an ABC sitcom, for example. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of ebbs and flows with society. I, I think that TV does not exist independently of the, its context, which is who we are. And we keep reflecting back on each other, we and television. And, uh, and so things that worked, you know, one decade will be shocking the next decade and then allowable the next decade. It, it really does morph all over the place, I think. Dan, how do those conversations take place? In other words, you know, you say that in the 90s, maybe somebody would say, well, you can't do something that you would have done at all in the family. Or, I mean, who says that? Do the producers of the show say it? Do the writers know it intuitively among themselves? No, no, no. Uh, the writers, the writers will write everything they want unless somebody tells them not to. Uh, so, so it's not. Uh, writers don't often, I think, put the hurdle in front of themselves and say, "I better not jump over this hurdle." They'll write until someone stops them. 
and uh, that that would of course come from the people paying the bill, uh, paying the checks. Those are the uh, the executives and the people who run the the you know the studios and networks. So um, I, I'm also curious to know, and maybe you can both talk about this a little bit. Um, I'll Saul Osterlitz, I'll start with you. One of the senses that I have is, uh, and, and, and Dan maybe he has kind of lived this reality, is that um, writers, the, the creators of sitcoms, probably start out working on a somewhat more traditional, fits-the-mold-of-the-moment sitcom and, and learn the craft, learn the trade, maybe learn where those beats are, learn you know, some, of the, some of the things that work, and don't work in, in, in television comedy. And then, if they're going to make a leap, they make that leap after that. So, um, I, and we'll, we'll have you go second, Dan, because I think that you know, that's very much your, uh, your story to a certain degree. Um, but Saul, I, you know, earlier this year I did a, a thing on stage with, uh, with Ben Sherwitz, the guy who created Arrested Development. Uh, in researching him, I was surprised to find out that he'd worked for quite a while on The Golden Girls, which doesn't really seem anything like Arrested Development. But I, is that one of the things that you found, that the creators kind of worked on, the, on wherever the plateau was and then made the leap in a new direction from there? Yeah, I still think there's a sense of television as a sort of apprenticeship in which you first learn how to do it, not necessarily on a great or transformative or all-time classic show. You just learn how to write jokes. You learn how to create characters. And then you're able to move forward from that. I think that's been the classical model, definitely with shows like Arrested Development, like with Mitch Hurwitz, also shows like Cheers, I think something like The Simpsons. If you look at The Simpsons at the very beginning, you know, the first season of The Simpsons, it's a fairly different show than it becomes later. It's much more standard. I mean, it's obviously an animated show, so it feels different, but it feels like a more traditional sitcom at the very beginning than it becomes once you get the sense that the writers and and showrunners realize, wow, we've created this incredible toy. What? Let's take it out for a spin. What can we do with it? I, I think that model has changed to some extent in the last couple of years where you have shows that really push the boundaries of what a sitcom is. You know, you look at something like Curb Your Enthusiasm or Broad City, uh, they're they're really expanding the horizon of what a sitcom is. I think a lot of people push back and say, you know what, that's not a sitcom at all. My feeling is it definitely 100% is a sitcom, but it's not sticking to that traditional model. And it's, it's really, uh, I, I think we've entered a stage of really amazing experimentalism within the formerly enclosed world of the sitcom. So, so Dan, does it look that way to you, that apprenticeship model? You learn the rules, and then maybe you break them? Yeah, well, I, I think that's true with everything creative. You're talking about, like, painting or music. You learn... You see, I, I think if you're going to be a musician, you have three stages, uh, if you're very good. One is you, you're just an anarchist. And same with writing. There will be people who start writing going, I'm going to break all the rules, but they don't know the rules yet. And so their writing is anarchic and, and all over the place and pretty much useless. And then they buckle down and they learn the rules. Oh, okay, so if this character says that, it's more, it creates more tension if the other character thinks that, blah, blah, blah. You, you, you just sort of learn these things. You absorb them over years and years. And then once you've absorbed them, if you're any good, you'll start realizing where you can actually break the rules effectively. Not just break them to break them, not just break them to say, look what I did, but to break them to actually make the entire piece elevate in quality and to create new sets of feelings and, and, and new kinds of scenes you haven't seen before. And that's kind of the, the route of, uh, I, I, that any good writer, I think, takes. And 
I, I just want to be clear. It isn't a cut and dried thing. Like I will work, I work on these shows that are at this level, and then suddenly I break free and write my own thing, and it's going to be the new different thing. Because it, it happens and fits and starts like anything creative. You might find in some episodes of The Golden Girls there are these weird little moments that are Mitch breaking out and becoming more Mitch-like. These little jokes here and there that are buried within the voice of the Golden Girls. And you might not notice it unless you're really looking for it, unless you're sitting and talking with them. Or you might see a scene in an early episode of something I did, which sort of is a little, uh, uh, a little bit of what I'm doing now, where I'm learning and growing within this other structure. Also, these creators who create the new things might have three or four times at the bat when they're creating things that look like things that have come before, things that are totally different. We just never saw them because they never got through the, the, the uh, big obstacle course that is getting a show on TV. So, so it isn't a cut-and-dried kind of, I'm going to now go from this plateau to that level. It is, it is this kind of uh, sometimes painful lurching growth, I think, artistically, that happens within the confines of TV as it is when we start out. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, our guest today are Saul Austerlitz, author of sit- the sitcom A History in 24 Episodes from I Love Lucy to Community. Dan, Dan O'Shannon, run out and buy uh, The Adventures of Mrs. Jesus, his new book of cartoons. Uh, also a writer who's worked on Cheers, Fraser, and Modern Family. We'll be back after this. Things were amazing with Kylie, but before I could get more emotionally invested, I needed answers to some questions that were very important to me. Name three spin-offs of the sitcom Happy Days. Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, and Joni Loves Chachi. You marry her. You marry her now. You marry her. All right, that was from Scrubs, and it was from a kind of um, meta, uh, a reflective uh, episode of Scrubs. Uh, Saul Austerlitz, uh, Saul Austerlitz, by the way, uh, his book is the sitcom uh, history in 24 episodes from I Love Lucy to Community. One thing that sitcoms have done kind of from the beginning is explore the actual medium that they're in. I mean, the the characters on the Dick Van Dyke show worked on a television uh, program. The characters on 30 Rock worked on a television program. One of the things that the sitcom has always been is kind of, uh, at least not not in every single universal, it's not a universal truth about them, but it, to an unusual degree, it explores what it is within the context of the show. Yeah, I think the sitcoms have always been interested in, in the medium in which they're found. They're interested in asking the question of what is television? What is this strange thing that I'm a part of? What does it mean for us to be making television? What does it mean for you in the audience to be watching television? And I had always assumed that that was a product of the late 80s and early 90s and shows like Seinfeld, which, you know, has this incredible self-referentiality and The Simpsons. But you look at even the earliest sitcoms, shows like I Love Lucy and The Honeymooners, you know, they have episodes where their characters appear on television and embarrass themselves in all sorts of ways. And it's clear that the creators of the show are thinking about this bizarre medium that they're a part of in which they're suddenly being beamed into people's homes and the sort of odd mixture of distance and closeness that, that's created as a result. Um, Dan Shannon, does that ring true as somebody who has been one of those creators? Um, I, think, uh, <clears throat> I think it rings true, uh, but I think along with that, additionally, you know, is, is if you're writing TV in the 50s, you're writing about what's happening in the world in the 50s, and what's happening in the world is television ex- is exploding, and that everyone you know is thrilled when a neighbor gets on Queen for a day and wins a bunch of things, or someone gets on a quiz show. Um, or, or whatever happens. And so, yes, that's going to become fodder for your stories because it's, it's now in the ether. It is now in the world, and so it becomes one of the instruments you can play as far as building stories. So 
So it might not necessarily always be, let's explore this medium, let's talk about this new thing that is television. It is, let's again, reflect what is in society and what is being reflected in this case is ourselves as television. And again, this goes back to radio. There are a lot of quiz shows and then quiz show parodies. I mean, Jack Benny was doing them, uh, Fred Allen, uh, from the beginning. Uh, they, they were doing that from uh, in, in early films, the early silent films. As soon as there was a big drama, there would be like a comedy version of it from Keystone or something. So, so there is a lot of self-spoofing in all the arts as far as, as performing goes. Um, but I do think, I, I, I also think once you get to you know, the 60s, get to the Dick Van Dyke show, get to people working in television. You have writers who are writing about their lives, and their lives are in this very, very strange place called television. And they have stories to tell that unless you're in television, you're not going to really appreciate. So let's get these out there. They're fun new stories to tell. Um, you know, I, I tend to walk into people all the time who say, you know, I work at a bank, my, my bank, and where I work would be a fantastic sitcom. Or I'm a dentist, and you should hear the stuff that goes on here, that my, my dentistry, would, uh, my practice would be a fantastic sitcom. Well, writers themselves are not immune to that kind of thinking. I work in television, therefore my life is fascinating enough that I can build a show around it. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but uh, I, I, I imagine that's kind of where the genesis of a lot of this sort of comes from. So, Saul Osterlitz, it seems to me that another thing that, that happens over the course of the story that you're telling, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that, that I don't know whether MASH gets the credit for, for this uh, uh, sharp turn, but, you know, horrible things could happen on MASH and, and things that could, would ordinarily previously have only happened on dramatic television certainly could happen within what was at least nominally a sitcom. It seems to me the other thing that's happening right around that time is that dramatic series are becoming more comic. So you have a show like seen elsewhere where the character of Belker played by Bruce White's I think uh, you know he's he's basically Maury Amsterdam on Dick Van Dyke and Howie Mandel on St. Elsewhere is basically Maury Amsterdam on Dick Van Dyke you, you, you have these these very very dramatic things unfolding and you also have a very comic take built within the same one hour show uh, about about these very dramatic things. Is that one of the things that you saw over the course of, of the arc that you explored, this kind of blurring between drama and comedy? Yeah, there's unquestionably a blurring that's going on. I, I think it, it begins first with the comedies, like you described. You have shows like MASH and, you, and All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore Show that have dramatic moments or dramatic episodes built within this comic framework. I think MASH is the most extensive of those. It has standalone episodes that really feel 100% like dramas in which characters are thrust into doing emergency surgery when they're not doctors, or there's an episode that involves a countdown clock on screen that we watch as we're told how many minutes are left to save a patient in dangerous life. Uh, really things that ha that we would think of as being primarily the province of dramas. And the dramas get into the business of it later in the 80s with shows like St. Elsewhere or Hill Street Blues. I think the difference is that the dramas kind of dip their toes in the water a little bit more hesitantly. So instead of, say, having an entire comic episode, what they tended to do was have comic characters who would appear for laughs. You know, So there would be one or two scenes of comedic counterpoint to the drama going on elsewhere. And eventually that changes. I, I think now we have... A, a series of dramas in the last 10 or 15 years that are much more comfortable with comedy than previous dramas had been. So you look at something like The Sopranos, which people obviously think of as the preeminent drama of its time, but it's an incredibly funny show as well. And you could even go so far as to make an argument that it is essentially comic in its bones. So I do think that there's been a real blurring between 
what's comedy and what's drama, also to the extent that today a lot of shows that I think of as being sitcoms and that are clearly comedic uh, in their DNA are often very dramatic. You know, I'm thinking about a show like Girls, which, uh, uh, you know, I've I've definitely encountered quite a bit of pushback from people who, who don't agree that Girls is a sitcom, but uh, it clearly is, and yet it's often engaged in intensely dramatic storytelling. So, Dan O'Shannon, I'll just let you react to what he just said. Uh, I agree. Uh, I agree. I think you can even find uh, harbingers of that sort of blurring of drama and comedy earlier than, say, MASH and, and uh, Mary Tyler Moore and uh, All in the Family, which, by the way, those those were, I, I agree, those were sort of the big ones. Those those were kind of the, the big wave that came. But you can even see bits of it before that. There was a sitcom called Room 222, mm-hmm. if you remember that one. Yep. And if you go back and revisit that, you'll see some like heartbreaking stories and real drama going on in the guise of this half-hour sitcom. It was barely a sitcom when you think about it. You can also look to drama, and you can go back as far as Jackie Gleason. He was doing The Honeymooners as part of a larger show, but he also had these like characters like The Poor Soul and that sort of thing where he would do these dramatic turns or these very uh, you know, uh, sad, pathetic characters. And you can see like even in uh, and later you can see in uh, Carol Burnett that she would do – you know, a, a, just a big broad comedy sketch, but then she'd also do a sketch where there was like this really sad, teary ending and sort of, you know, sort of these wistful moments. It's like the sad clown thing. So as far as you go back in comedy, you'll find the clown, but you'll also find the sad clown poking around. So it, it's got a tradition, uh, you know, going far as back as Chaplin, you can really kind of see mixing, you know, comedy and pathos. Uh, but in, in the actual form of sitcom itself, it seems that that, that early 70s period was really the time that, that sitcoms stopped being sort of like uh, leashed in by that that feeling of it always has to be funny all the time. It can it can it can sustain more drama and, and comedies too came along. I think I think dramas later actually, when you get to like Saint Elsewhere and stuff. I think it's later than that that first wave of comedies edging toward drama. I think that's what you were saying before. I agree. All right. So uh, by the way, as we go along here, our number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. If you have a comment or question about what you hear, eight six zero. Two seven five seven two six six. One of the things that I'm very disturbed by right now is that I remember very little about my day yesterday, but I'm pretty sure I know remember the theme music to Room Two Twenty Two. Now that that's upsetting, um, except that I think it really is sort of. I mean, that's comedy right. so try, much. Try to count the beats when you hear that. A very strange time signature in that. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll do that right after the show. I think I have the, the song correctly in my head. But um, All right, so I want to talk a little bit, too, about that. You know, one thing that, Dan, you were talking about earlier is that sort of question about, you know, what can you do, what can't you do? And and that, that conversation goes on within the context of a show that's already on the air. But it also goes on, I, I, I sense, before a show gets on the air. And it, my, my guess is that the history of sitcoms, the history of um, exciting innovation in sitcoms is always preceded, almost always preceded by resistance. So, and, and, and so let's hear a clip from a show that I'm sure had a little bit of trouble getting on the air. You're really going to town with that turkey there. Oh, yeah. I got a big appetite. Oh, Jerry, you got no mustard. It's huh? on the door. What, this yellow stuff? No, I said mustard, Jerry. Dijon. No. That's Bush League. Ah. Hey, hey, wait, 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 what are you going to leave it there? It's like half a pound of turkey. Oh, no, I can't eat that. You can't eat a sandwich without Dijon. Yeah, you're right. I really should keep more of your favorites on hand. So, Dan O'Shannon, here's Seinfeld, a show that is, you know, famously too New York, too Jewish, 
uh, full of people who never learn and never hug, uh, who are having, for the most part, these really rather Socratic explorations of tiny little aspects of, of life. But sort of, you know, what is the right way to be? What is the right way to behave? How is the right way to react in this particular circumstance? Um, it, 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 it may resemble other shows that came before it, but it also seems like kind of a leap. And I'm assuming that for a show like that to get on the air, a, a lot of fights have to be had. Uh, that one had a real uh, problematic birth. You know, that was actually created by the, the late night division of uh, NBC. That's kind of some package someone had somewhere where it's like, okay, you can create a sitcom. And, and I think NBC's intention was to just put it on, get rid of it in a few weeks, and go on to the next thing, and then let the big boys do the actual real sitcoms. And so it got shuffled. It was originally called the Seinfeld Chronicles, and it got shuffled around and shuffled around, but it, it, it grabbed this little core audience, and it just hung on, and then it became, of course, what we know. You know, there's an odd little thing, a little footnote, if you're interested in the, in the Seinfeld thing. I often hear that it changed TV because it was the show about nothing. And I agree with you about the Socratic explorations, which I think is a huge, terrific hallmark of the show and the fact that nobody learns and that sort of thing. But the show about nothing is a myth, okay? It starts off with these episodes that have almost no story to them. That's great. But as it goes on, the stories get more and more complex. So when you, by the time you have episodes where they're trying to sell their life story as a sitcom to NBC, you can't say it's a show about nothing. You know, the, the stories get so complex and, and they get so, so you know, like Gordian knots that, you, that they become the opposite about the show, uh, the show about nothing. The way it changed TV uh, was before Seinfeld, in a multi-camera sitcom, that's a sitcom with, with a studio audience, you rarely, rarely had a show that had more than six scenes in it, okay? Um, if, you, if you kind of branched out your story, you might get ten scenes. Often a sitcom might have two scenes, one in the first act, one in the second act, but you really get more than six. Seinfeld came along and started doing these little tiny scenes, actually building sets for two lines. The idea of having a scene that small was unheard of in a multicam before because it was cost prohibitive. So I remember sitting around the TV with other comedy writers with a pad and pencil watching Seinfeld and just mind-numbingly counting the scenes. We couldn't believe it. 15 scenes, 16 scenes, 24 scenes in the show. It changed everything. And it changed the energy of the show and the way the audience had to engage to follow the stories. And then NBC said, okay, friends, you've got to do smaller, smaller scenes. And, and what happened was the sitcom got a new life because we could do the longer scene shows, like a lot of episodes of Fisher, but we could also do a lot of pop two scenes, like in Friends. And so that's how Seinfeld changed the sitcom. Yeah, it seems to me, um, Saul Austerlitz, that we did a whole show, actually, a whole episode of our show about Seinfeld. And one of the things we talked about was that, you know, I think probably sitcoms have always explored metaphorically what our anxieties are, what our questions are, what kinds of, um, you know, I mean, my three sons, you know, dealt with some question about what if you invited two girls as your date to the prom by mistake. Uh, so these are sort of basic kinds of social anxieties. But Seinfeld kind of, they sort of stripped away the plot and pretense and, and sort of said, well, people are anxious about ordering soup in a situation where the guy on the other side of the counter is aggressive. You know, like, how should, how should you act in that situation? Why do you always have to bring a bottle of wine to a dinner party? What if you don't like wine? You know, the, these, these basic kinds of questions, rather than being explored metaphorically, were just sort of asked outright in, in a way that I think really was kind of surprising to people. Well, I think it's not just that. It's also that it created this sense of comedy being built around a sense of our own discomfort with what's happening. So we watched Seinfeld, at least when it was first on, we watched Seinfeld with that sort of gnawing feeling in the pit of our stomach that things are going to go terribly wrong, that everyone's going to misbehave, and that there's not going to be any sort of uh, happy resolution. And, And I think that is extended out to become almost the default of 
well-wrought television comedy today. So you look at shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is obviously just a direct descendant of Seinfeld, but even shows like Girls or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, they really depend on that sense of uh, making the audience uncomfortable, of, of leaving the audience feeling like things are falling apart constantly. All right, so uh, we're going to grab a break here. We're saying uh, goodbye to Dan O'Shannon. He has to go work on the sequel to uh, his book of cartoons, The Adventures of Mrs. Jesus. Uh, So we'll uh, end this segment with a clip from one of his shows, Modern Family. Nobody likes a crying baby on a flight. It's it's very stressful. Yeah, uh, last year I flew back from New York next to a baby who was very upset the entire flight, and it was hell. I was on that flight with you, and I don't recall. Oh, I get it. You're talking about me. Very funny. Yeah, we couldn't get tickets to Billy Elliot. All he wanted to do was dance. And that's my story. Five hours of this. I just want to dance with the ballet! I'm too busy to watch sitcoms, so I take them in pill form. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Anna Novak. Greg Hill and Sir Ray Hardman appeared in the intro, and Greg tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bob Denver. For show pages, articles, and clips from That's So McNichol, a sitcom based on the Faith Middleton Show staff, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, a conversation with Hal Holbrook. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're talking about the sitcom um, here in the final segment. We are going to talk a little bit about the the storm warnings uh, for the sitcom that you've been hearing lately. Of course, you've been hearing them for a really long time, too. Joining us, uh, one of my favorite writers about television, Willa Paskin, a television critic critic for Slate. Uh, also, also still with us, Saul Austerlitz. Uh, his book is a history, this, excuse me, sitcom, a history in 24 episodes from I Love Lucy to Community. So Willa Paskin, uh, in one of the um, episodes of the Slate t- uh, sort of dialogue uh, about television, in which you critics and other writers are writing back and forth to one another. This whole question came up again about whether this sitcom is is the sort of the sick man of television right now. Uh, now, this argument has been made for decades and decades. It's not hard to go back and find an article from the 1990s predicting the death of sitcoms. And one other TV writer talked about uh, the sitcom recession, which might be a better way to put it. But so but what's, what's your take on that? I mean, we've had a season where sitcoms that would have seen otherwise been seen as otherwise viable that have big stars in them like Will Arnett get uh, canceled uh, kind of quickly. And this has uh, occasioned uh, some thought that, that maybe this form just doesn't have anything left to say to us. Could that possibly be true? Well, I actually don't think that that's what the downturn or the bad luck of sitcoms recently on network TV especially is saying. I mean, if you look at TV sort of writ large, comedies are doing really well. Um, you know, there's they're not all sitcoms. Some of them are like the Amy Schumer Show or the Nick Kroll Show or Key and Peele, or some are, you know, sitcoms on Comedy Central like Broad City or on HBO like Veep or this whole other category of kind of maybe comedies, maybe dramas, you know, like Girls and Louie. Um, and they're all, that's all really robust, and people are talking about those shows and engage with those shows, even if they don't quite have the ratings um, that would make them hits if they were on a network. But what is happening is that the sitcom on network TV, which is really like this great, I mean, as you've been talking about all episodes, it's sort of like really great, authentic American format is really struggling for a lot of reasons. Um, And I think that that is a real thing. And I think that though it has happened, yes, many times before, you know, after Friends ended, after the Cosby show ended, everyone's like, the sitcom's over, we're never going to find a big hit again. Um, because network TV in general is just having 
such a hard time getting viewers. And it sort of seems that the way they've been most successful is with shows that people feel like they have to watch, sort of water cooler TV shows. Um, and sitcoms just are not that. And there's been a real, they have a real problem. So Saul Austerlitz, early in the, earlier in the show, we were talking about, I'm wondering whether maybe a, a loop has been closed here. You were talking about the earliest days of television and who was watching television, you know, who was in the market for a, a style of comedy that really was influenced by Jewish comedians more than, than anything else, by Jewish comedy in the Borscht Belt and, and in vaudeville. And you were saying, well, one reason for that was the early consumers of television were a much more select group, and a lot of them lived on the East Coast as opposed to the heartland, so maybe they were a little bit more in the market for an, an urbane and urban uh, style of comedy. I'm wondering if that's sort of happening now, too, that the audiences for these shows are small enough and self-selecting enough so that comedy can be a little bit more bespoke. What's your thought there? I think that's true. I think that comedy is actually doing incredibly well on television right now and is honestly having a, a kind of moment for itself. It's just I think what's what's at issue is that, like what Willow was saying, you know, when people say the sitcom is dying or the sitcom is struggling, what they mean by that is they're talking about network sitcoms. And they're not – I don't even think that they're saying that network sitcoms are bad or I don't want to watch them. What they're saying is there's no network sitcom that is captivating an audience the way that The Cosby Show once did or Friends once did or Seinfeld once did. And that's undoubtedly true. At the same time, there's just an embarrassment of riches of shows, especially on cable, that I, I think are extending what the sitcom can do and demonstrating that it has a whole lot of life left in it. I'm thinking about shows like Broad City or Transparent or Togetherness or Girls. And even on the networks, I think that there are some really excellent shows, something like Blackish or The Mindy Project, which just finally found its footing after kind of struggling for a couple of years. I think what's at issue is just that audiences haven't really found their way to those shows. And maybe that's because audiences, mass audiences, are not as interested in those shows as they once were. And maybe it's also because those sorts of mass audiences just don't exist anymore outside of the Super Bowl and the Oscars and other sorts of one-off events. I, I don't know that there is the framework in place anymore to have everyone watching the same thing at the same time the way that they did 20 or 30 years ago. No, uh, Willa Paskin, obviously people don't do that. And, and so what you have instead are, are, is a show like Transparent that's available through Amazon. Uh, and you have maybe even a show like Jane the Virgin, which isn't the standard length for uh, a sitcom format. But the other thing people can do is DVR shows and stop them and start them and consume them kind of at, at any pace they want to, which, which makes you think that the form is going to change a lot because the structure for delivering the form, as Saul is saying, has changed so much. Well, I mean, the form already has changed a lot. I, you know, I heard Saul say earlier that he thinks that Girls and is, a, is a sitcom, and I, I'm not quite convinced that that's the case. Obviously, a lot of these shows that have these dramatic elements, like Transparent and Louie and Girls, um, and, and Girls has been hugely influential, you know, they care about laughter and being funny maybe more than a drama would. But their relationship to making you laugh is so much more tangential than any actual sitcom, you know, full stop sitcom that has ever existed before. So I think we're already seeing just a huge variety in in sort of what we're expecting from a show that's 30 minutes and allegedly around to make us laugh. 
I wonder if that's really true, though. I mean, once again, I, I don't. I, I wasn't that in love with Mash. I don't know why I keep coming back to it. But outcomes on Mash were incredibly important. In other words, how things turned out for those characters in any given episode was sometimes a real matter of life or death, someone's life or death. Well, you can't really say the same thing about girls. You know, there's not a lot on the line in girls. You know, it's it's Marnie's relationship. It's you know, it's whether or not Hannah is going to work out okay at the Iowa Writers Workshop. So I I think you could make the argument that that sitcoms in the past have shoved a, a lot on the line and still expected to get laughs. Yeah, but I, I just don't think that those that girls and Louie and Transparent, for example, are oriented around laughter. I'm not saying anything about how serious previous sitcoms occasionally were. I mean, sitcoms, have, as you guys have said, have always had sort of, some of them have always had serious elements, they've always had serious episodes, they've always had that capacity. Um, but I am not, I just am not convinced that the shows that are sort of interested in exploring like the middle ground between being a comedy and a drama are as just dedicated to the idea of laughter. Yeah, I was thinking that watching, we're almost out of time here, but Will, I was thinking about, I watched, I watched Jane, Jane the Virgin for the first time last night, and I was thinking, well, it is, you know, I mean, it can't be, it can't not be a comedy, because otherwise <laughs> it would be a very serious and unpleasant thing for a girl who thought she was a virgin, a young woman who thought she was a virgin, to be accidentally inseminated. Um, it has to be a comedy, right? It just It's not working within the same structure and beats of normal comedy. Well, weirdly, I could kind of imagine that show on, like, ABC Family as a kind of light drama, honestly. I mean, I think something almost like that has maybe been on ABC Family. But, yes, obviously, I think Jane the Virgin, which is a really lovely and sweet and funny and light show and has a kind of crazy telenovela vibe, it needed to be a comedy or, or it would be... Um, it would be a lawsuit, you know, it would be malpractice. Yeah, sometimes by process of elimination, they have to be comedies. All right, we're unfortunately way out of time here. Willa Paskin, te- te- uh, Slate's television critic. Dan O'Shannon was with us before, has written uh, for many shows, including Modern Family. Saul Austerlitz, his book is Sitcom, A History in 24 Episodes. From I Love Lucy, Lucy to Community. Thanks to Tucker Ives for conceiving and producing this show, and Wolfie for keeping it humming. We'll be back tomorrow. On the next episode of Carbon Dating... I have to be honest with you. I'm cold sexual. Okay, I I can hook you up with my friend Ash or... Oh, my cousin Coleman. Wait, dudes or chicks? Whatever's Cole.